through 27. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Lord God, thank you for your word. It's living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. And we pray even now, O Father, that you would give us your spirit and open our eyes and our ears to hear the truth that you would have for us today and that you would make us not just hearers of your word, but doers of it. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. You know, today we continue our sermon series on the metaphors of the church And if you were here last week, you may recall that we started the sermon series on what is the Bride of Christ. And today we're going to be looking at the body of Christ, the metaphor of the body of Christ. Now, just as a reminder, each of these metaphors help us flesh out the question of what is the church. Help us understand what the, the purpose of the church of God is for you and me. Now, periodically, people will say to me that the Bible doesn't teach that we have to join the church. Now, that's true on the surface. You will never find a command that says, thou must join the church or or, thou must become a member of the church. Scripture is more nuanced than we might like, and it doesn't always give us a proof text for everything we ought to do or believe. Now, as my seminary professor used to say, that we don't do theology on the word level, we do it on the concept level, right? How we do it on the concept level, we just think of the Trinity. There's not one verse in the Bible that you can go to to figure out what the Trinity is. It's done on the concept level, looking at the whole of Scripture in a number of different places. Most of our Christian life is lived on do's and don'ts that we think of, but we go and look for commands, but there aren't a lot of commands, particularly in our modern context for how we work out, do I look at pornography or not? I can't find a verse 
about looking at pornography. Does that mean I don't look, that it's okay to look at pornography? Well, no, it's not okay. And scripture gives the concepts of why pornography is wrong, why sexual immorality is wrong. Um, so we can't always have a particular verse that gives you a command because scripture doesn't work that way. Often it's in concepts. It's bigger than I need a verse proof, not there if I, therefore if I find that verse proof, it's, oh, it, that now tells me what, or, what to do or not to do. No, it's bigger than that. It's on the concept level. And I'll let that die there now for a moment. The Bible doesn't give us a command to join a local fellowship, but it does something even more through the use of metaphors. Mark Deaver, a pastor at Capital Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., says that if the Bible simply said, join a church, we could treat membership like checking a box on a to-do list. But by portraying the church and its members as a body, a temple, a flock, and a family, the Bible forces us not only to join a church, but to consider how well our lives fit with that biblical imagery. If you think about the imagery we're using, marriage, body, a temple, uh, these different metaphors, the assumption in the metaphor is that you're part of the body, that you're, you're, you're joined together in marriage, that you're, you're the sheep in the flock. You're not outside of that. You're already included within it. The metaphors force us to ask, does my church membership look like that? Does my church membership look like the body of Christ with both its unity and diversity today? In 1 Corinthians 12, we encounter one of the most famous metaphors in the Bible. Here, Paul describes the church as the body of Christ. The context of the body of Christ's metaphor here is around the misunderstanding and misuse of spiritual gifts. Now, we won't be talking about spiritual gifts today, but we will look more deeply at the analogy that Paul brings out here. Paul draws a parallel between the church and the human body. You see that in verses 12 through 26. And then and you need to understand, this is not a new concept. Paul's not drawing on something new. This was actually a, a regular concept, a regular idea that was used within the ancient world. In the ancient world, comparing a society to a body was, com was a common rhetorical device, especially in appeals for social harmony. How, however, Paul takes this familiar concept in a unique direction. Traditionally, the metaphor was used to encourage the lower classes to accept their societal roles, maintaining the status quo, not challenging the established social order. In contrast, Paul uses the body metaphor in a very nuanced way. He advocates for both the unity and diversity within the body, while also emphasizing the mutual interdependence of its members. Rather than reinforcing social hierarchies, Paul employs this metaphor to encourage those in more privileged positions within the community to acknowledge and value the contributions of those who might seem lesser in both their social standing and in their spiritual gifting. So today, I want us to look at three things that Paul brings out in this text for us. First, Paul begins by highlighting the unity of the body of Christ. And then he's going to go on and touch on the interconnectedness of that body. And then lastly, we're going to look at the diversity within the body of Christ. Friends, unity binds us in shared faith and purpose. Interdependence reminds us that we need each other to fulfill God's mission. And diversity celebrates the varied gifts and perspectives each believer brings to the body of Christ. Paul begins his discourse here by comparing the church to a single body with many parts. 
Verse 12, he says, Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. The imagery is powerful in its simplicity and its depth. The church of Jesus Christ, Paul is saying, is like a living organism. But what exactly does he mean here? He explains in verse 13. He says that we are all baptized with one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Now, Paul isn't speaking per se of water baptism, but rather the work of the spirit in the life of believers that water baptism symbolizes. Paul is saying that the Holy Spirit transforms us and brings believers into a living relationship with Christ. Through our union with Christ, we are now united together in his body. Every Christian is a member of Christ's body. So much so that we could say that how we treat the church is how we treat Jesus, who is the body of the church. I want to say that again. How we treat the church is how we treat Jesus. How you relate to the church is how you think about and relate to Jesus. I hope that would cause all of us to stop and and at least think, take a minute to think about that idea. Maybe leave here with that little nugget, go home and contemplate that a little bit more. Friends, Paul's point here is to show us that our unity is founded in the work of the Spirit. Paul doesn't simply suggest that our unity is from some sentimental feeling. No, instead, it is grounded in the reality of our triune God who fundamentally unites us as one body with many parts through his Spirit. This is why the unity of the church is so important. We are part of one body, and one body only functions well when all its parts work in unison. Now, you can imagine this. If you have your foot cut off for some reason, can you still walk? Well, yeah. Do you walk as well as somebody with two feet? No. All right? And that's the idea Paul is bringing out in this unity. We function well when all our parts are working well and unison together. Paul's call to unity is so much more, though, than than conformity. It's a divine invitation to form a united, supported, supportive, and loving community despite our differences. It's a unity in purpose. It's a unity in love and a unity in pursuit of Christ's mission. Look, unity can take a variety of forms, though, right? It's seen, we can see unity in how we support one another in times of need and how we come together in our worship and in our collective efforts to serve our community. Unity is also manifested in how we handle disagreements within the church, that is, choosing love and humility and understanding over division. As members of one body, our actions and attitudes towards each other should be guided by the love and humility that Christ himself has displayed for us. If we would operate with the humility of Christ, most issues we face as a church would resolve themselves rather quickly. We should desire unity, but of course, we want that unity for the right reasons. Sometimes we want unity because it looks good to the world, right? Or because unity means we have less conflict. Of course, these are all good things, but that is not what Scripture calls us to. That's not why Scripture calls us to unity. Jesus in John 17, in his great high priestly prayer, prays for all believers to be one. He calls us to oneness so, first and foremost, that we would glorify God in our oneness. 
Jesus also said that our unity in the church would demonstrate the reality of God's love and the authenticity of his mission. Now, I think sometimes we get caught up and go, oh, the, the Protestant church or the Christian church is divided. We have all these different denominations. But I'm talking about us right now. I'm talking about this body. Jesus is saying for, for us as his body that we in our unity demonstrate his love and his mission in the way that we get along and support and encourage and bless one another. Paul's call to unity here challenges us to look beyond our personal preferences. If we're going to truly have unity, it can't be based on everything that I want. Because guess what? Most likely everything I want isn't what you want. It can't be based only on my personal preferences because my personal preferences differ with yours. And if unity is important to us, and it should be because it's important to Jesus, then we must be willing to lay down some of our so-called rights to achieve that unity. That means we must be willing not to have all of our preferences. We must be willing not to have all of the things that we want in a worship body, in our worship, in whatever areas you can think of in ministry, in order to achieve unity. Now, again, I'm not talking about theological differences here. I'm talking about the way we work together and the way we get along with each other in the church. Right? Most of that can be subsumed under the need for us to practice humility towards one another in these areas where we have so many disagreements. Paul's metaphor of the body of Christ also extends to our interdependence. He emphasizes that no one part of the body can claim inter, inter, or can, can, ooh, wow, excuse me, can claim independent from the other parts. Paul states, as it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. The human eye, of course, is an astonishing and an intricately designed part of the body. However, despite its ability to perceive various things, the eye by itself is unable to grasp hold of anything without the assistance of the hand. Similarly, within the body of Christ, there are members of the church family who appear to be more prominent and recognizable in their roles, right? You see me up here pretty much every Sunday. You see many of our elders every Sunday. Many of you know Andrea, who's our ministry coordinator. You see her often. We have very recognizable roles in the church. But there are also those in the church family who carry out tasks or other roles that go unnoticed. Yet without them, their ministries that are more visible, the ministries that are more visible and upfront could not function as well. You know, think about it for a moment. Most of us have no idea who sets up the sanctuary for worship, that we have a whole team who does that every Sunday, or who breaks down the sanctuary after worship. Yet without these members who so often go unnoticed and maybe even unappreciated, our service could not function, or at least not function as well without them. Amen, right? Amen. <laughs> Paul's point is that as the church of Jesus Christ, we need each other. As one scholar has written, it's almost ridiculous to think that members of the body don't need one another. Paul wants us to see that we are irrational when we fail to see the indispensability of others. Even the weakest member, Paul says, the weakest member of the body of this body are indispensable. 
that is, we can't do without them, that we would not function as well as God has desired for us without the weakest members in our body. No Christian can truly live out their faith in isolation. We are meant to be part of the body. One, our mutual independence, our mutual dependence is not a sign of our weakness. It's rather a sign of God's design that showcases the strength and wisdom of his plan for his church. Each member, regardless of their role, regardless of their gifts, is crucial to the health and function of the whole body, of the whole church. In practical terms, interdependence is seen when we lean on each other's, when we lean on each other's strengths and when we compensate for each other's weaknesses. It's seen in the prayers and the support and accountability we offer each other. Here's the thing, church. The, the shared life is not just a lofty ideal. It's the reality of what the church is called to be. It's about recognizing that we are better together and that each of us plays a vital role in the collective mission of God's church. This mutual dependence is a source of strength. It allows for, for a fuller expansion or expression of God's gifts and a more effective witness to the world. This interconnectedness is a powerful testimony to the world of the love and the unity that's found in Christ. That love and unity that is to be a draw to the outside world. When the outside world comes into this body or is involved with this body and they see our unity, they see our appreciation for one another, that is a testimony of the grace of God at work in the lives of this body. It challenges, this interconnectedness challenges our individualistic mindset and calls us back to a more biblical, communal understanding of what it means to be the body of Christ. Look, we live as Americans, we live in an extremely individualistic world. Yet when you look at scripture, it wasn't just about the individual, it was about the community. And we as a body need to adopt, at least add that to part of our mindset. It's not just about me. It's not just about you. It's about us as the body of Christ working and striving together for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lastly, Paul celebrates the diversity of the body of Christ in these verses. He says in verse 14, Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now look, as the body of Christ, we are both one and many. One body made up of many parts with different functions and different gifts. This teaches us that, God, that in God's kingdom, diversity is not just tolerated, but it's a fundamental to the church's functioning. Every believer, regardless of their background, regardless of their skills or status, has a unique role to play in the body of Christ. You know, I don't want to get ahead of myself and assume we all understand what diversity is. Mark, going back again to Mark Deaver, says this about diversity. He says that diversity is probably more important and at the same time less important than you may have thought. It's more important because when people with little self-interest at stake love each other, that is when you, when we love each other, we're not, we're not in a sense, this is not my immediate family, right? I'm, I'm not blood related to you, and yet God calls us together as a family. And when we love one another, it shows the world a distinction between even us and them. But Mark David goes on and says, it's more important because when people with little self-interest at stake love each other, 
sacrificially in the church, it's a giant advertisement that something supernatural is going on. The visible bond of our unity shows off the power of the gospel to our world around us. Mark Deaver continues and says, at the same time, diversity might well be less important than you've thought because it's not an end in itself. For example, someone may pat themselves on the back and say, yep, I'm a member of a diverse church. That makes us pretty awesome, doesn't it? But that's a man-centered view that makes diversity as an end in itself. You can be a diverse church and an unhealthy church all at the same time. That is, you can have no unity, no love, and no gospel and still be a diverse church. So what then? So what? True diversity, Deaver says, is compelling when it highlights unity around the gospel. Anything less than that is not biblical diversity. But really, though, what is diversity? I still haven't answered it. I suspect that most of us, at least, without notice, would say that diversity means racial or ethnic diversity. And of course it does, but diversity means more, though not less, than racial diversity. And of course, excuse me, diversity within the church includes economic diversity, social diversity, ability diversity, cultural diversity, age diversity, sex diversity, and more. We have a very ethnically diverse church here, and praise God for that. We are a church made up from people from all over the world. Many of us are first and second generation Americans. For example, Raul, where, where are you from or where's your family from? Uh, and if I were to go around and ask questions of each of you in this congregation, probably over half of you would either be a first or second generation American. With that one question though, in response from Raul, some of you here immediately began to think, what in the world is Jim doing? You can't ask questions from the congregation while preaching, right? You can't do that. What's he doing? But my question is, why not? Why not? Some of us feel uncomfortable in worship if we raise our hands. Why is that? Or we think others shouldn't be raising their hands in worship. For most of us, the reason we feel uncomfortable is that we think, or we feel that way, or we think that way, is because it's not because of some theological reason, it's simply because of our culture. We weren't brought up that way, we don't think that way, we don't do things that way. We have a great deal of ethnic diversity that is also a reflection of our cultural diversity here in this church. And in our diverse context, we often make assumptions about others that, that in essence disregard the uniqueness of their culture, potentially judging them based on our or my cultural standard or your cultural standard. For us to be a genuinely loving church, it's important that we work to understand and know each other's cultures. That's what it is to be diverse. We're not just diverse in our skin color, we're diverse in our culture as well. And if we're going to thrive in our unity, then we need to work to know one another's cultures and how people think. You know, several years back, our family was at a water park was actually more than several, several years, but um, many years back, our family was at a water park in Cyprus. Nathan was five years old, and he really wanted to go on this water park ride that was uh, lily pads sitting on a pool, and you jump from lily pad to lily pad with you know, water splashing on you. He was super excited. It was only for kids 10 and under, so Karen and I were like, sure, go ahead, 
do this little ride, and we stood back and we watched. Now, he was in line for this ride, and, and the first thing we began to notice is that there was a little girl in front of him who was probably eight or nine years old, and she was British. This girl kept looking at Nathan, like, and then taking a step forward. She would look back and then take a step forward. And Karen and I, after a little while, began to laugh because we realized what was happening. Uh, this little girl was really feeling frustrated uh, and annoyed and a little offended by this five-year-old boy who had invaded her personal space. There was no reason for Nathan to be standing so close to her, and it made her extremely uncomfortable, and it was one of the funniest things I'd ever seen. Literally, she would take a step forward and look back, and Nathan would take a step forward, so then she would take a step forward, and it went on for like minutes, and Karen and I were just dying laughing. Now, but the thing is, is Nathan didn't know that he was doing anything wrong, but this girl was very uncomfortable. For Nathan, he'd grown up in Ukraine, and personal space is not as defined there. Even touching a stranger in line would not have been rude. And so he was just doing what he normally would do, which was you stand right next to somebody because you don't want anybody to cut in front of you. All right? And so personal space, again, didn't mean anything. But for this little eight-year-old girl, she was so uncomfortable and felt that he was being so rude and disrespectful to her. And again, it was hilarious to watch. Now take that example, though, and put it in a church made up of many cultures. The probability for misunderstanding and hurt grows almost exponentially. Or let's look at it from this way. At one time, I worked with international students who came to the U.S. to work on their master's degree or their Ph.D., one young woman over the course of a year came to faith in Jesus, and, now she, and she was from China. And God was doing just an amazing work in her life. But one day, after a year or so, a year and a half or so, she came to me, and she had now joined a church, and she came to me and asked for some dating advice. I'm always hesitant to give dating advice, but here I was, her mentor, um, and she asked, and so I felt compelled to do so. Uh, she, a young man who was also from China and, ha and a believer wanted to date her, and she was asking me if that was okay for her to date this man. She felt very concerned because the young man was not as educated as she was, and he was from a lower social standing in China. I, of course, told her that dating was fine, and that dating or marrying someone different of a different social status didn't really matter biblically. All right, we, we can marry whoever we want. But in but in reality, I had missed her real concerns because I saw her issue only through a Western lens of guilt and innocence. That is an issue of justice. For me, it was an issue of justice. Of course, you can date whoever you want. He's a believer. You're fine. Date him. And so that's what I told her. Yeah, absolutely. You can date this man. No problem at all. I advocated for justice and dating whoever she wanted. But her primary concern wasn't an issue of justice, but shame. She and I were viewing the world through a different cultural lens to a different cultural landscape. My advice to this woman wasn't really all that helpful because I was not speaking her language at all. Friends, the gospel has a tremendous amount to say about honor and shame, and yet I was ignorant of that and only saw her problem through my cultural lens, not hers. So I wasn't really able to help her. I wasn't even really able to speak into what her needs were. And here's the thing, church. We live in a city that simultaneously celebrates and mandates diversity while, express, while expecting everyone to fit into a primary white Western culture. As a church, we have to do better than that. We are a body of a hundred different parts, and each part is necessary. Each of us is necessary. 
Our diversity as a church is a wonderful, wonderful picture of heaven. But it's also a challenge as it makes the potential for misunderstanding and hurt greater. It makes the potential for disunity greater. As a church, we need to grow in our cultural competency and not be, see, no, not be so easily offended by words, political views, or even opinions around ministry. We need to learn and extend grace and be curious about views that are different than ours. Don't assume that your brother or sister from a different cultural background thinks the same way as you on everything, because I can almost promise you they don't. Of course there's overlap, of course there's understanding of things, but it's not complete in any way. Our job as a diverse body is to thank God for that diversity and to prayerfully work towards the unity God's given us through his spirit. We are the body of Christ, and we need to live that out every day, right? We need to live out the truth of our unity and diversity. We can't just claim unity while, while ignoring the diversity, nor can we center on the diversity and ignore the unity. Paul is calling us to bring the two together and to hold them in unison, because only in our unity and in our diversity will we be a one church. As members of the body of Christ, let us commit to living out these principles. Let us build a community where unity, interdependence, and diversity are not just spoken of, but are vividly and powerfully demonstrated in our relationships with one another, in our ministries, and in our outreach. May this church be a beacon of Christ's love, a testament to the transformational power of the gospel of Jesus Christ in our own lives and in our community. And church, we do that when we learn to thrive in our unity and our diversity. Would you pray with me? Lord God, give us grace as we learn to thrive in our unity and diversity. Give us grace to tear down walls that divide us and build bridges of understanding and unity. Lord, help us to know and live out the truth that we need one another. And you have given us each other to grow us into Christ-likeness. Help us to appreciate our differences and grow in our understanding and love for one another. And may you be glorified in and through this local body as, ref as we reflect more and more of your character. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.